Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Sunday evening, February 26th, another day, another podcast. What uh, what are we talking about this week? Just one topic this week. On February 24th, that was the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the war that has ensued over the past year. The United States has been intimately involved in a lot of ways. We'll talk more about this, but given over $75 billion in aid, including close to $50 billion in military assistance. Just last week, President Biden made a surprise visit into Kiev, the the capital of Ukraine. It's the first time that a president has gone to a war zone, which the United States didn't occupy, maybe ever. I don't don't remember, certainly the last time it was definitely a, a... a significant move. I think you could read it a lot of different ways, but it was symbolic in how he stood with um, President Zelensky in, in Ukraine and for the United for the the relationship between the United States and Ukraine. He, he delivered a really a soaring speech about the the need to protect freedom and, and democracy and how the United States and its NATO allies will stand with the Ukrainian people for and the Ukrainian government for as long as it takes. That was very much in contrast to a speech that President Putin gave on the same day, blaming the West for the war, saying that they're the ones that caused the war, they're the ones that are prolonging this war, and they're just it's really just a split contrast. So anyway, that's a long way of saying that we felt that a year in that we should try to take stock of the situation in Ukraine, the United States involvement, global thoughts on it, uh, domestic thoughts on it, and we're going to be joined for that conversation by Dan Fishman, who has appeared once before with us. Uh, I'll, I'll talk more when we bring him on, but he's the, the former executive director of the National Libertarian Party. And so really curious to have him on and hear his thoughts at it from uh, more of a, a libertarian perspective. And um, certainly Ricky and I will give our traditional takes on on how we feel like the United States has handled things thus far. Yeah, we uh, we can't help ourselves. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, but we're, we're hopeful. I think it's going to be really interesting. One of the things that I, I think is fascinating about this conflict is how people don't fall necessarily on traditional ideological lines, which generally I think is a really good thing. Actually, I, 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 Ricky, I'm reading the Federalist Papers slowly but surely. And in one of them, Madison talks about like how when people have are passionate, when they're overcome by their passions – they're always on the same side. You can give a hundred issues and it's always going to be, I'm on this side. But when you're ruled by reason that depending on the issue, you're going to be on different sides of the ideological line. And we certainly hope that as passionate as we are about some of these things that we're more ruled by reason. And I, I think that where Ricky, myself, and we'll see where Dan fits, maybe are not as in the traditional party or left, right, conservative, liberal lines that what we normally are. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have that conversation too. Yeah, well, I'm I'm just glad you're finally giving Madison his due. <laughs> ah, look at that. 
it's a great reference. People should go listen to the the draft we did last week, our Mount Rushmore draft, or go back and listen to the first one we did where we drafted the the presidents two years ago. Lots of fun on those episodes. Uh, <laughs> All right, before we bring Dan on, just a quick reminder, everyone, the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, Cannon Hill Wood, their business has been very successful. How do you know when a tree's business is doing well? Mm, I don't know. No one leaves. <laughs> oh, uh, like you've had some good guesses recently. Like, all right. Uh, it has a lot of branches. Ah, that is, no, that is good. I give That's you awesome. credit work. Right. I, Ricky, we, uh, one of my friends listened for the first time last week and he said, I was finally ready to give your podcast a shot. And then I heard your wood pun and I almost threw my phone out the window. <laughs> so I hope, I hope, I hope that anyone that heard that and just shook their head or like let out a deep sigh, give, give the rest of the episode a shot. Let's bring on Dan. All right, we are now thrilled to welcome Dan Fishman back to the program. This is Dan's second time on with us. He joined us last summer to talk about libertarianism in general, and we're, we're again, thrilled that he's given us his time and uh, his thoughts to, to come back today. So for those of you that don't know or didn't listen to that previous episode, uh, Dan Fishman most recently served as the executive director of People for Liberty which was an organization dedicating to promoting like uh, libertarian ideals and values in the United States. Before then, he served as the exec- executive director of the Liber- National Libertarian Party. And prior to that, he had professional experience in special education and also a long career in the, the tech world and computer science and also ran libertarian campaigns for the House of Representatives and for state auditor here in Massachusetts. So a deep, varied background and experience that Dan has, and we are very excited that he's back and joining us. So thanks, Dan, for, for coming back. It's a thrill to be back. I, I Am I your first repeat guest? Second. Second. Okay. Yes. But it's, you know, Ricky, I'm like, um, it's cool that we've gotten to the point where we're having repeat guests. <laughs> like, yeah, and so, yeah, but no, we're, we're very excited to have you back. And so I'm, I'm going to kick it right to you, Dan. Uh, obviously, your background is as a, a libertarian. I'd be curious to hear your personal perspective on how the United States has handled the the war in Ukraine thus far. And then if you'd like to compare, contrast that to how the current National Libertarian Party has thinks about what, how the United States government has done. Sure. So first of all, let me recommend, there was an amazing article published yesterday in Politico. Do you look, you're nodding, Ricky, like you might have read. Yeah, you guys both read it. It's unbelievable, right? Uh I mean, they had Liz Truss, Prime Minister of England, commenting on it. It was amazing. Uh, So a long, long time ago, one of the things that gets left off of my resume was that uh, I was I really wanted to do a career in the Foreign Service. Uh, In fact, that was my original focus getting into college. I was a big uh, Avril Harriman guy. For those of you who don't know who he is, he's the architect of what was called uh, asymmetrical deterrence. Soviets push in one place. United States should push back in another. Um, going back to the old Cold War philosophy. Now, as a libertarian, uh, and I still define myself as a small L libertarian, 
I don't believe in aggression. I am a firm believer in the non-aggression principle, but I very strongly believe in the idea of self-defense. Um, the Politico article paints a great example of the fact that the Russians were committed to invading Ukraine for probably half a year, if not longer, than before they actually invaded. And the West was aware of this. And they did everything they could to prevent war. When I say everything they could, I, there was a lot of disbelief, even in very senior circles, even looking at this remarkable intelligence that we had, that the Russians would actually go to war. And, you know, it's not, you know, not, not and I don't mean this is a slight on uh, Georgia or uh, Chechnya, other places where the Russians have been at war. But Ukraine is a country of 44 million people. You know, it's enormous. Uh, and then other people couldn't believe, uh, and let's lay this out too for your listeners who aren't familiar with the Budapest Memorandum. When the Ukraine left, uh, and actually when all the Soviet republics left, the United States, England, and Russia got together and said, look, there are nuclear weapons in this country. And sorry, Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, et cetera, we're not convinced that you guys can keep them super safe. And so we would like for you to return those weapons to the Soviet Union. Or they didn't like to be, they don't like to be called Soviet Union anymore. Uh, they would like them to return them to Russia. So, and the Russians liked that idea too. Ukraine, when they did it, we all got together and we signed, us, England, Russia, signed this thing called the Budapest Memorandum that said that nobody would invade Ukraine that we were all committed to making sure that Ukraine's sovereignty and borders were respected. So now here we have Russia violating this thing that they signed. And most of the time, the Russians are sticklers for the law, right? I mean, they, they, they really like try to twist the law around, but there's no way you can twist around the fact that you signed a document saying that you won't violate, violate another country's sovereignty when they haven't done anything aggressive towards you. So, Here's this whole lead up. The United States is doing a lot of things. Now, some of the things they didn't do, they didn't do preemptive sanctions. But I am, uh, as I say, a libertarian. Uh, I believe in the non-aggression principle. Um, I don't know that, I mean, it, it wasn't my choice. Are there other things that I would have done? It would have been interesting to try to organize uh, military ventures with other countries. Like Ukraine borders Poland. What if uh, Poland had, uh, you know, while we were preparing for this, done some maneuvers inside of the Ukraine, you know, just brought their troops over there, stuff like that. That would have been an interesting statement. Um, there are other ways that we could have worked military alliances, but the United States did a pretty good job of trying to do that. And, and let's be fair, the UK was really involved too. And again, for people who aren't familiar, there's this... Um, loose affiliation of countries called uh five eyes um and essentially it's you know the five english-speaking nations of the world with apologies to india um there is uh you know it's the united states canada uk australia and new zealand and uh they are maybe i should say uh it's probably a good word to say besides english-speaking countries um English-speaking countries that were originally colonies of England, so English settlements. Um, 
to that end, though, those countries all had a really good knowledge of what was happening inside the Kremlin. Uh, you know, they had a source that was very highly placed in the uh, Russian military. And what's fascinating about it is that source was so highly placed, it had better information than Lavrov, the Russian Secretary of State, Russian Foreign Minister. This guy, the, our, our intel knew things that he didn't know. So how great is that source? And it points to one of the other things that I still think the United States could do that would be amazingly impactful, which would be to flat out ban American countries from doing business. Tell Apple, you need to brick every iPhone in, the, in Russia right now. Same thing for Android. Imagine the effect that that would have. And then tell people that, you know, as soon as you withdraw from the Ukraine, your phones will work again. That will cause some popular unrest. Same yeah, thing. I don't I don't disagree with that. But that seems like a very contrary <laughs> to your libertarians of like beliefs of making companies do certain things on well, behalf of the government. So you're right. And I wouldn't do that. I would hope that Apple and uh, Android, I, I hate it when I get called out on things like that. You're right. Totally unethical, and I wouldn't do that. But it, it's certainly something that they could do. You know, Apple's motto is, oh, no, wait, no, it's Google's model, who is do, don't do evil. Uh, one of the two of them. Uh, Apple, Apple's model might be anything for a buck. I don't remember exactly. <laughs> but, um, whatever it is, there, there's other things that we could do. I mean, they did we did ban banking, but obviously banking re, re, uh, relies on the government. One of the things that you could do without potentially forcing a country to do anything, you know, uh, cannabis industries, as you guys guys in Massachusetts know very well, can't take credit cards. Why? Because marijuana is illegal, the federal thing. So you could just tell uh, Apple that they can't use the American banking system, which is run by the government. Uh, So you're not forcing them to do anything, but just say, so I, I, I really don't want to go there. I'd rather have Apple do it on their own. But I, I think that there are other steps that we could do that would exert a lot more pressure. Um, I'm I'm happy that we are uh, giving the Ukrainians weapons. Uh, I'm happy that we are giving them advice and support and some of the best intelligence. Uh, I don't remember when Ukraine was advancing in the east at breakneck speeds, uh, really driving the Russians back. I was really worried. I'm like, you know, this is a classic entrapment maneuver by a giant military. And I'm worried. uh, And I mentioned this at, I live in DC. The DC cocktail circuit is what it is. At various points in time, you are in a room with people who know a lot of stuff, but they can't tell you that they know a lot of stuff. But one person said to me, he said, you might imagine that the Ukrainians are getting the benefit of the best military analysis from the best military minds in the West. So I wouldn't worry that they're advancing too quickly. Uh, I'm like, all right. All right. So I want to kind of jump off like that core point where you say, like, personally, you are happy that the United States is providing Ukraine with weapons, with military support and military intelligence. Now, I guess I, I, I want to hear from Ricky on this, too. But how does that kind of jive? And I'm sure you've thought a lot about this with like your political or moral philosophies of like not of really the libertarian idea of like non-interventionism and not really getting involved in other people's conflicts. 
So, but there's a difference between not getting involved in other people's conflicts when people are arguing about stupid stuff. Okay. But if you see in, uh, so, uh, you know, a little plug for my new organization, let.live, that's the web address, HTTP, let.live. We have an article up there talking about the fact that consent culture, which I believe is the core of libertarianism, requires you that when somebody is being touched against their will, without their consent, that you say something. Because two people can always impose their will on one person because there's two of them. They have greater force. So what that means is that anybody who sees somebody being violated is required to say, no, we are going to defend the rights of the individual to not be touched. So now interventionism, right? Okay, if we're having an argument between India and Pakistan, right? I think that's one of the hot spots. Uh, I have a friend who designs war games, and that's a place that for a long time people thought there's a real possibility of a hot conflict going really nasty here. It was, in fact, it was the number one spot for a long time in the world. Um, where should we be in a conflict between India and Pakistan? They're they're both democracies. You know, they both have fundamentally similarly free cultures. We can make arguments about all the stuff that happens out in the villages. And, uh, you know, just like you can argue about, you know, Westboro Baptist Church. There are people who don't represent uh, the country, but those are two fundamental, fundamentally democracies. Um, us getting involved in a conflict between the two of those, that doesn't make any sense to me. On the other hand, if you tell me that China wants to invade Taiwan, that is something that I think speaks to the idea of a bully trying to push down a free state, trying to capture a free state. And if we make each individual free state stand alone, there's a mathematical problem there. The point that I put out of two against one, you know, anytime somebody has to stand by themselves and our requirement is that everybody stand defend by themselves, they are divided. And, uh, you know, a, not many libertarians will quote Lincoln, but right, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, the free people of the world have to be united on that one basic idea of freedom. Okay. All right. I, I, I can certainly buy that. Now, Ricky, I want to bring you in here because Dan said that he's largely been in favor of what the United States is doing. You and I have talked about this before, and I have largely been in favor and supportive of what the Biden administration has has done. So what, what's your perspective, you know, a, a year on from this conflict of how the United States has handled it? Yeah, well, you know, in general, I am the the cynical one of the two of us. And I think, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense when you sort of frame it as the defense of democracy in the face of authoritarianism authoritarianism right like i think that in that sort of black and white sphere a lot of what we've been seeing makes total sense like the unwavering support you know roughly from the united states from the european union um from most of the west i think is very understandable in that context i mean i think you know i would also argue that we've been down this road before in other places um perhaps more tangentially here than in some other places more actively like Vietnam's not a perfect allegory but like I think there there are definitely some similarities I think and yeah I, I mean and I don't and I don't say this lightly because I you know fully understand 
the why well, I, I don't know that I fully understand, but what is happening to Ukraine is horrible. Um, obviously, hundreds of thousands of people killed, both Russian and Ukrainian, and then on top of it, millions displaced, tons of infrastructure destroyed. Like it's going to be a long time before they kind of get back to any semblance of normalcy. So I, you know, full disclaimer there. That being said, if I think about the war in in from a different mind frame, as you know, that I I like to to do, I don't. I mean, I, I think in in our media, it's portrayed as unilateral aggression. I think I think there are certainly good arguments to say that that's what it is, but at the same time, and I you know I made this analogy before, like if if Mexico was going to join a transatlantic uh, treaty organization with Russia that would allow them to do like joint war games on our border. I don't think we would have that. I think it is legitimate for Russia to talk about their security concerns. I don't think what they're doing is legitimate, but I will say that I don't know that we, even as like kind of global democracies have as much unification as you would think, right? Like I, you know, so many countries are abstaining in the, when we're trying to pass resolutions in the UN to condemn what's going on in Russia. Obviously, India and China continue to effectively fund the war by buying Russian oil, right, against our sanctions. So there are a lot of other nations that are saying that this is, yeah, potentially not our not our fight. And I guess the last point I'll make is, like, we've seen our determination when we get into situations that we cannot win. Um, in terms of how long we are willing to prolong our stays there, how much money we're willing to throw into it. I have no doubt that Putin is similarly minded. And if the goal for me would be to get like Ukraine back on its feet as quickly as possible and, and really end the fighting, I think we have to think about other means besides just funding militarily, because in so many ways, this allows the not, not yeah and this, and this is where it gets tricky right because certainly you cannot reward what Russia did by allowing like some of the territorial gains that they made in Luhansk and Donetsk to like stand those that's Ukrainian land it belongs with Ukraine but at the same time yeah how do you how do you do this because we know who Putin is he's a very you know proud individual creating some sort of situation where they unilaterally <clears throat> lose and it's a very like obvious loss is potentially not tenable and not a tenable solution. So uh, yeah, I provide no solutions. Although I guess what I'm, I guess my takeaway is that I don't know that what we are doing today is leading to a sustainable peace. And it's actually scaring me more when we've talked about kind of like poking the Russian bear here over and over like there is going to be a point in time where they're like, you know, this is enough money from NATO aligned nations to say that there's no way for you to say that you're no longer involved in this conflict. And I don't think that's really what Russia wants either. But at the same time, I don't know that there, it's going to be hard for them to to say things are going otherwise. Yeah, I mean, you brought up a ton of stuff there, and we should definitely touch more on Russia suspending its participation in the 2010 START agreement, which was like the last remaining nuclear control deal between the United States and Russia, which deals which had been hammered out over the course of the latter half of the 20th century. But Dan, I have a, a question for you kind of building off that, because sure. Ricky and I have 
long, both of us kind of railed against the military industrial complex that has existed in the United States for the last 70 years. And we we point to all of these different examples where you brought up Vietnam, but certainly the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are the most recent examples of that. And there are plenty more examples too. But I think Ricky's here, like, then we split on this. When we have an actual example of this, Ricky's like, look, this is exactly what we've complained about us doing again. We've, we've now given $75 billion to that to this to, to Ukraine. And I reached out to one of my friends. We've had him on the podcast before, a former um, colonel in, in the Marines. And I said, what do you think about this? And he said, in my opinion, this is just military industrial complex, private elite interest looking for another spot to spend their money and to, and to make money off this. And I guess, I don't know. I'd be curious your opinion on how do, how do you kind of square that where like, I, I believe they don't know this before you, you're probably as equally against the military industrial complex as Ricky and I are, but then how do, how do I, how do you, it seems be like, well, in this case, what we're doing is, is actually the right decision. So, I mean, I, I think that we have to separate out two parts of that. Okay. So for the one thing, you know, I am against taxes collected by coercion. Okay. I, I think that, you know, if you don't pay your, if you don't think taxes in the United States are collected by force, try not paying them and see what happens to you. Um, so I, I don't like that idea that all that tax money and all the weapons that we're talking about are being funded by, uh, you know, money that was collected by force. On the other hand, when a disaster happens, and let's not use East Palestine because I think the government's really making a complete cock up of that as well. But let's talk about uh, flood relief or things like that. You know, the government comes in with all these supplies that they bought beforehand. And do I wish that they had collected my my money by force to buy those things? No, but they have those things right now. And so I am okay with them using those things that they have right now in order to address an emergency situation. If we didn't have the stuff that... Uh, if we didn't have the weapons, would we try harder and do other things? Maybe we would shut off the iPhones, right? Maybe we would engage in more uh, dramatic cyber weapons, stuff like that. Uh, I don't know. But there's the real world and there's the world that we live in. Uh, sorry, no, the real world and the world we live in are the same things. There's the real world uh, and then what we want the world to be. The real world thing is that these weapons exist right now. And yeah, you know, I see the cynical thing about it. Uh, there is, Gary Johnson said, the world is being kept in a perpetual state of conflict to justify excesses on the part of governments. And I would argue the military-industrial complex. You know, governments are fundamentally tools of powerful corporations uh, that, powerful corporations and individuals that in uh, countries that allow free speech are able to amplify their speech and dominate government. Um, so, yeah, you see government being used to collect money from people to support businesses like the military industrial complex or big pharma or healthcare or whatever. It's all the same. That part's all the same. But we have to put that part aside from the fact that one country invaded another. And <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about Putin's rhetoric, too, right? Okay, Putin has really been cracking down on LGBT. He talked about the fact that, uh, you know, Ukraine is undermining Russia because they accept uh, gay behavior. Uh, they accept trans people in their society, stuff like that. Um, you know, and I don't think he's saying that just to 
you know, fulfill the stereotypical role of villain. I think that that's really what they believe. And so here we get the, the, the argument against the military industrial complex is a strong one, but that doesn't mean that the right answer is to allow bullies to dominate a thing. The, the answer is that, uh, we shouldn't be collecting money via taxation. Let's get that part out of the way. Uh, I'm serious, though. That's I know you are, but this is—it's just funny. Like this, is, it feels like the libertarian talking point. It all comes back to taxes. <laughs> well, it, 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 I mean, it doesn't really come back to taxes. What it comes—it comes down to just really one thing: consent culture. Don't touch anybody and don't take anything from them without their consent. Now, here's the thing: if there was an option, I would be giving money. To if uh, we talked about this the other day, all right? I mean, I know what I did for a living. I was a software guy. Figured out I probably paid a half million dollars in federal taxes over the last ten years. Um, if you were to tell me that that money bought, you know, five hours of tank time or whatever, I'm happy with that. I would have voluntarily contributed that much money to Ukraine's defense over this time. But you know, I'm not. I wasn't happy when it was taken from me at the time. But if there were a voluntary thing to get into, but we have to separate that part out from all the other arguments. The voluntarism, what, what we call you know coercion versus persuasion, uh, because it's a different argument. We have to imagine that the problem is, is that so few people care about coercion, about the way taxes are collected, stuff like that, that you have to say that everything that's in the United States is mostly done through voluntarism even though it's not, and we know it's not, right? And we know that the government is being manipulated by the military-industrial complex. We know that there is spending that shouldn't be happening. All that stuff, those are separate arguments from we have the ability to help these people defend themselves, should we do it. Okay. All right. That's fair. I, I want to actually jump off the comments you made about uh, Putin's rhetoric, like the anti-LGBTQ stuff, because obviously you could say that about a lot of people in this country as well, powerful people who are, you know, who are in positions of Tulsi Gabbard. No, sure. Right. But it's like, these are prime examples that I want to use that to go to the interesting, the, the split in how parties here in the United States are supporting or not supporting what the Biden administration is doing. So Ricky, you kind of alluded to this and I'll throw it to you first where there's, I think the most recent poll I saw, I think Fox did it, but it said about 50% of the country said that we should support Ukraine as long as it takes for Ukraine to be able to rebuild and to protect themselves. And the 46% disagreed with that and said that we should have pretty firm limits on the amount of time and the amount of money that we're willing to spend on, on, on Ukraine here. And probably not surprisingly, two thirds of Democrats said that like we should be supporting them as, as long as we want to. Only 40% of Republicans said that. And so but you really have this like far, the far right, who I think are rightly being called like Putin apologists, are pretty much saying that like we should be cutting off aid to Ukraine. Like they use this term like blank check, which doesn't even really mean anything. But they're pretty much saying that we shouldn't be spending any money here at all. And Dan, I'm going to come back to you for this with like the Libertarian Party now, because the Libertarian Party is on is very much in that train as well of like we, we shouldn't support this. So Ricky, I'm just curious, like what your thoughts are, where how much of it is like Democrats supporting a Democratic president, like if Pre President Trump was doing exactly what Joe Biden was doing, would we have would those percentages be different? I think probably, of, of course, that they would be. But the 
just like the interesting splits that we have amongst the major political parties right now in terms of support for U.S. action in Ukraine. Yeah, it's I mean, it's definitely or, or not even really a departure, right, from normal politics in in many ways. Right. Well, we always say you always say, yeah. yeah. The middle of the road, moderate conservative Democrats, when it comes to these types of conflicts are always, you know, yeah, let's we're going to fund it. We're going to because they are fighting this existential crisis for democracy. Right. Like, I think that that is firmly what what they believe. And, you know, I mean, to many of Dan's points, like there is a lot of that at play here. From yeah, from my perspective, I think if the if the like there needs to be a reckoning with like, what is the goal? What is the aim? Right. Because if it's, we're just going to keep throwing money into this until Russia like turns around and says, you know what, Uh, we've had enough, forget it. Like, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And if the, if the aim is we need to get the Ukrainian people who are no longer able to live in their houses back in their homes and like with some semblance, semblance of normalcy so that like all of, you know, multiple generations of Ukrainians are not, in, destroyed from PTSD and all this other stuff, then we really have to think about, it's not about ending the amount of money or support that we provide. It's thinking about like, how are we going to get this conflict to a resolution? And then, yeah, how can we then reinvest in this democracy that is on, that is on Russians, Russia's Eastern border, right? Like the, to me, there's still not, not a discussion of like, what is our end game here? And it really just feels like, yeah, I mean, the idea of self-defense is nice, but, you know, to the points that I've made in the past, like when it comes to global superpowers, there is not really enough money that you could provide for self-defense, I think, in this situation where the other side is eventually feels overwhelmed that they can no longer continue. Like I Russia is doing, not oddly enough, but like similarly to historical battles past where they're comfortable just sending people to the front lines and just replenishing that stock. And it's, 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 it's wild that this is happening in the 21st century, but it definitely does not feel like there's a certain amount of money or particular weapons that we could give that are going to bring this conflict to a close like it has to be done at least partially diplomatically and i and and i think quite frankly the problem is right now we're just putting the onus entirely on russia and which i think is i mean is is very valid in many ways but like there are two there are two big dogs in the room it's either putin's going to like unilaterally decide okay I'm done with this now and pull everybody back or we have to go there and say like, you know, what do you want? You're not going to get this. You could maybe get that and turn Ukraine into Switzerland or something. And they're like, that's, you know, we're, we're the other side of this coin and we're kind of pretending like we're not, I think. Yeah. So Dan, you can build off any of that. Or I would be curious, like, I just think like the coalition of like far left Democrats, far right Republicans and libertarians, like on the same team here is really interesting. So curious to hear your thoughts on that, too. So so a couple of things. First of all, you know, that U.S. poll you're talking about saying that 50 percent of Americans believe that we should stay uh, involved in the conflict. They did a poll in Russia. Ninety nine percent of the Russians believe that what Putin is doing is right. Oh, wait, those numbers have been updated. It's 100% now. Yeah. <laughs> Firing squad in action. Yeah. Um, 
sorry, I drove too good to leave go. Uh, you know, and we talked about Vietnam earlier. Actually, you know, in Vietnam, we're the Russians. We're the people who shouldn't have been there. Uh, you know, you can make the argument that, you know, we came in to defend the French, uh, to take over from the French, but the French were supporting a puppet government. Ho Chi Minh based the Vietnamese constitution on the writings of Thomas Jefferson. In his inauguration address, he said, and this is, you can look this up, he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created by equal and endowed by their creator. So, and Ho came to the Congress, to Europe after World War I uh, and, and again after World War II. And after World War II, he went to the leaders. He said, don't leave the French in charge of Vietnam. They're terrible. It's a, you know, an oppressive state. Uh, anybody but the French, please. And the Europeans, and in fact, Roosevelt had committed to a free and independent Vietnam. And then de Gaulle said, well, then we're not going to be in your alliance afterwards. And he split out of it. We should have been on the side of the North Vietnamese, but because we weren't, because we weren't on the side of the actual freedom fighters, they had nowhere else to go. So they had to go to the Russians, uh, but we forced them there. So we, we're, we're the bad guys in Vietnam. It's okay to say that. Um, just like the Russians are the bad guys here. Now, what is our resolution? I mean, our resolution is very simple, right? Uh, there's there's a fancy uh, fancy word for it. Uh, status quo pro uh, status quo antebellum, return things to the way they were before the war started. So just everybody go back to their regular borders. That's all we want. We're not asking for Ukraine to take over Russian territory or anything like that. But as to the idea that uh, you know. I don't think the Ukrainians are going to wear down. Okay. Uh, you know, anybody who knows sort of the history of the sieges of Stalingrad, uh, you know, that's the Ukraines. That's the Ukrainians, right? They uh they're used to that. That's their history, and the Russians ought to know that. Um, but the uh in terms of our willingness to stay involved, I can't speak to that directly, but I can say that actually the amount of money we're giving them is nothing, right? I mean, it is seriously less than we spent compared to the $6 trillion that we spent on COVID, right? We're not even close. And we made that money up. It's not real money. They just, they just flipped the switch at the digital bank. We didn't have that $6 trillion lying around. So, uh, the, but to that end, there was a truth to the matter that came in Vietnam that we could not get peace while Ho Chi Minh was alive. Like the United States wanted to get out. They're like, we'll give in to whatever terms you want. But at the end, Ho Chi Minh was crazy and, and legitimately so, right? We committed atrocities upon his people. We, true story, the United States dropped more bombs in North Vietnam than were dropped in all of World War II by every country, okay? We bombed the crap out of them. We were terrible. I get that he never wanted to make peace with us. But it wasn't until he died that we were able to essentially come up with a peace treaty that allowed the United States to sort of get out of there. Where we are with the Russians, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think, though, that uh, the idea that they have, that they can carry on till the end, I disagree with that. Uh, the problem is, is that they become somewhat wealthy, and that is going away. 
You know, again, like if you read that Politico article, their economy is cratered. Okay. I mean, they are limping along, but <laughs> they are. Uh, and then this goes back to sort of, you remember, I, did, I mentioned that this was sort of my, what I wanted to do many, many years ago. There are five areas in the world that are capable of sustaining a war themselves. United States, uh, Manchuria, Ruhr Valley, England, and then Russia. But Russia, it's kind of iffy because that involves a lot of the Ukraine. Um, they are, you know, at the cusp of uh, what they're able to do. And you say that they're willing to keep sending people into battle, but where battles are nowadays, uh, we've seen, we see what the best Russian soldiers did, right? Because they sent their best in the beginning, okay? And they got massacred. You see the guys from the Wagner group who are getting captured now, right? The guys that they've taken out of the prisons, um, and they're terrible. And so Russia's not, Russia, it's not like fighting against the Nazis where they could just send men to the front line with really, right? They sent them with wooden bullets because they didn't have enough bullets left. Um, and being placeholders meant that the lines held a little bit. It's not like that now because weaponry and warfare is so incredibly sophisticated. You are exhausting yourself when, uh, you know, you're getting weapons from the Iranians. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that I'm not sure that I agree that the sanctions have been as effective as as we hoped that they would be, right? Like Biden came out and said originally that this was like sanctions that Putin had never seen before. It was going to crater the Russian economy by 15%. Like Russia's economy, I think, contracted by like 2% last year. Like they're, they're projected to grow more than the UK's economy this year. And it's because, as you acknowledge, that like countries like China and India have not involved themselves in these sanctions. And even though the United States likes to paint this picture of this global coalition that we have, it's actually really a, a United States and Europe, Western European it's, coalition. It's, it's NATO. We can say it's NATO. Sure, right. But it's so, but I think the if you listen to Biden talk about it, it's like, oh, we have this global coalition of democracies. And really that's that's not true. And whether it's whether it's India or um it's South Africa or Kenya or other uh Middle Eastern countries who I know who I know are not democracies but are or have not joined the sanctions on Russia, where it's like the stuff that we thought was going to put so much pressure. And I, again, I understand that Russia, the government's kind of like propping up their economy in a lot of ways with with how they're manipulating the ruble and everything. But it's it doesn't seem like we've we've squeezed them as much as as we thought. And so, like, I, I don't know, Dan. I think like you've you've articulated a clear goal, which is something Ricky even maybe more than than you did there of like, hey, that's that's the end goal, but. I don't know that I buy that times on Ukraine side because of all of the internal pressures that I think exist here in the United States, Dan, to your point that just don't exist in Russia because you're not allowed to like really have those beliefs. Like even no matter how world where like war where you are, no matter how much you've personally been hurt by the <laughs> sanctions, like you're not going to go and protest what Putin's doing here in the United States. We could elect someone. We could elect. It's very, I think it's quite plausible that we elect someone in two years that's immediately going to be like, we're done with this. So I actually think that there's not, the time is not on Ukraine's side. So to that end, I would be curious, like, Ricky, we had talked about how we finally gave in on the Abrams tanks. And then immediately Ukraine was like, well, we need F-16s. And we're like, ah, not yet. But I think there's, and I don't know how I feel about this personally, but I think there's an argument to be made that like, if we're going to be involved here, we need to be involved harder, more that we need to try to push this to end soon as opposed to drag it out forever. And Ricky, to your point of, so of like, 
well, if this war goes on forever, there's no real Ukraine to rebuild and invest in. It's just that it's just a it's a it's been devastated even more so than it has been. So, Ricky, I'll throw it to you first. What do you think about something like that, where it's like if we want to end it soon, then we need to we need to be going harder. Yeah, but Russia still has nuclear weapons and then, you know, at some point it's it just gets even scarier, right? Like I I mean, I think in any other circumstance, of course we have like we have overwhelming military force. I think you know, you know, Dan made a good point of like, well, what is the 50 billion dollars that we've given kind of a drop in the bucket, right? Um, of our of our multi-trillion dollar expenditures for COVID. But I mean, I would also argue, what is any of this money? It's all printed anyway. <laughs> when you're running a $30 trillion deficit or something, it, like, it doesn't make any difference where it's coming from. But $50 billion compared to what, do you, do you know what annual budget Russia is working with for their military pre-war? $65 billion is what their annual expenditures on on, in the military was right. So like ours 750 billion, I think we let when we last looked at it in 2020 or 2021, Russia is working with 10% of that. And we just gave the same amount to Ukraine and they probably surpassed it with what they're getting from the UK, Germany, Poland, all these other places. Right. So that like that, I I think that's what is, almost worry more worrisome is that like we did sort of show that Russia, you know, you can't just go in here and do this and have everybody else sort of sit by idly. And they're the fact that they're not deterred enough yet is what makes me feel like there isn't a certain amount of money that we could put into this or a certain amount of force that we could put into this without really risking something far more i mean it's hard to say far more catastrophic but like certainly possibly far more catastrophic than what's happening today um yeah so i i mean i think i think that that's like the sort of the the elephant in the in the room that there is a certain limit to what we can um do or yeah maybe what we should do given what we know russia is sort of sitting on from a nuclear arsenal standpoint sure yeah I mean, the the problem with that is that uh, I want to clarify the numbers a little bit, too. So so we haven't given seventy five billion dollars in aid in military aid to uh, the Ukraine, uh, according to Council on uh, Foreign Relations, who, you know, some people tell you that's government shill. Uh, but it's four billion dollars in humanitarian aid, uh, twenty seven billion financial, uh, eighteen billion dollars in training, which definitely includes a lot of military training. Uh, we're paying for a lot of training in Poland. Uh, $24 billion in weapons and equipment, uh, and then $4.8 billion in uh, grants and loans for weapon and equipment, which is essentially us giving money to the British to give weapons to the, uh, to them. But, uh, you know, those, the capacity of, uh, you know, a modern war is, requires an esprit de corps, uh, highly trained troops and, that's the thing that the Russians have lost. They don't have that anymore, and they don't really have the breathing room to continue to wage this war and try to uh, train up their troops. Uh, because, I mean, people know it's a death sentence, right? The best and the brightest are not volunteering to go into Russia, uh, into the Russian armed forces. Conscription, you know, produces terrible results. 
So uh, I think that you're going to find, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens this spring, but Ricky hit the nail on the head too, that, you know, you have to fall back on the point that the Russians are a nuclear power. Okay. Uh, unlike anybody else, uh, really, except for us and uh, the British and you know maybe the Chinese a little bit. Um, they have the ability to bring tactical nuclear weapons to bear. Uh, and those, I, I, I don't think that that's impossible that they might do that. I, I could see the Russians saying, you know what? We need to get our tanks through to Kiev. Um, and there's this armor brigade. And so we're just going to drop a little one kiloton from an artillery shell. And, uh, you know, that's a terrible effect. That happens, though. I mean, what are you going to do? You can't. It, the one thing that we know from, re, from again, real world history, appeasement never works. Okay. It didn't work in Crimea. It didn't work in the Sudetenland. It didn't work in Poland. Uh, you know, this is great story. I think we talked about this last time I was on. Uh, Neville Chamberlain gets back and declares, we have peace in our time. And the British are weeping in the street. They are so relieved uh, because, you know, World War II was so, World War I was so terrible for them. Like another strange fact, English casualties in World War I are four times higher than their casualties in World War II, uh, which is insane, right? I mean, you think World War II is a much bigger conflict, but England bore such a terrible burden that when the time came, the option for them to have peace, they're like, we're going to take it. We're going to take peace, you know. But what we know is that that leads to a much larger and more terrible conflict every time, because every time that somebody starts off on this path, it doesn't end. And Putin's been on this path. This is not the beginning, right? How many other countries has he invaded and imposed his will upon? And we sort of let him get away with it. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if he succeeds in Ukraine, it's going to be Lithuania. Uh, it's probably going to be Estonia next. But then it'll be Lithuania, and then it'll be Latvia. Uh, and then it'll be Poland. And so where do we stop? I mean, in many ways, Ukraine is more prepared to do it. So, you know, I, I get the whole argument that the Russians are making about uh, they're worried about their nuclear, uh, about being surrounded, about an alliance against them, stuff like that. There's no way that they can say to themselves, geez, NATO's going to invade us, right? NATO's goal is the military occupation of Moscow. It's just not there. If they had any sense at all, right, they would say our clear path is what the Germans did, right? Or what the Japanese did, economic warfare, right? The Germans and Japanese succeed, succeeded in that by not spending a lot of money on their military. But Russia has always been ruled by strongmen. Uh, this is their pattern. This is their, their thing. The only language that uh, strongmen respond to is strength. And so if the most anti-war position that we can be taking, and I am an anti-war person, is to make sure that the cost of war is too terrible. Otherwise, if it were too terrible, what? I, I, God, I got so many quotes this show. Um, I, I want to say it's Waterloo who said, it's a good thing that war is so terrible, otherwise we would love it too much. Um, that's We have to make it that way. The cost of the war has to be 
way too high. And it, it is for the Russians. And I think you're going to see whatever they think they've got going in the spring, unless they are bringing weapons of mass destruction to bear, which they might. But unless they do that, they're going to get soundly trounced again. Well, there's one kind of other aspect that we've danced around that I do want to bring up here is potential Chinese involvement. And we, we've said how a lot of other countries, non-Western countries, non-NATO countries have been reluctant to condemn Russia outright. And we've seen like a lot of really outreach to Russia from countries, again, like I've mentioned, like India, South Africa, yep. India, whatever. But China is obviously like the real elephant in the room here for a number of reasons. One, with this very tense relationship that we're currently, that the United States and China currently has. Uh, two, it just came out last week that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said that the United States has pretty good intelligence that China is seriously considering providing lethal force to Russia, which is a step they haven't taken, even if they haven't abided by Western sanctions and have continued to trade with Russia, this would be a big step forward. And obviously, like China's got its own interests, whether it's in their conflict with India or with Taiwan. So like China's thinking of all these things too. But certainly, you know, if that would add a new dimension to the war and a very worrying dimension to the war. It definitely does. And I know we've been going Ricky and then me, but I'm just going to jump first yeah, and yeah. you can come back after me. So I, one of the things I do think about regarding India is that uh, I think we could treat it like blood diamonds, right? We stop the trade on blood diamonds by saying anybody who trades with anybody who trades with blood diamonds, we won't do trades with them anymore. And so I say any country that buys foreign oil from Russia, any country that buys oil from Russia, let's just start imposing an enormous tariff on their goods. Because the value of our trade with India is so much higher than the value of the oil that they're buying from Russia. Because they have to buy the oil no matter what. They're getting it, you know, $10 cheaper a barrel from Russia. But uh, they could be buying Saudi oil or somebody else. And you know what? It's a great way to bring the Middle East, the Arab countries in on our side to say, you know what? You guys aren't trading oil. You aren't buying oil from Russia. Guess what? We're going to penalize everybody who is. So now those people are going to have to buy oil from you. I mean, in the, the modern diplomatic alliance thing, I think that's a pretty strong thing. Now, the Chinese won't care. Okay. But there's got, there's, there's no way around the fact that, uh, there's a point of principle here, and I don't think I don't think that the Chinese and the Americans are ever going to come to serious conflict, because I think our cultures are fundamentally similar in terms of, uh, you know, capitalism and communism, very different means to an end, but the end is everybody's wealthy. <laughs> um. Russia is not, that is not the ends. Russia is a very, you know, with a one person in charge, very dedicated to a class level structure. And in that part of it, it's very different, right? I mean, uh, Xi Jinping is not Vladimir Putin. He doesn't have the same level of control. Uh, Putin is, Putin is a real dictator, right? He can do his stuff. Xi Jinping, right? I mean, he he's the leader of the party, but he is still dependent on the party for support. Nobody thinks of that about Putin anymore. 
Um, and the, in fact, talking about that poll earlier, the person who commissioned the poll in Russia about support has also been killed recently. So uh, there, there were, I want to say there were uh, 49 uh, Russians arrested in anti-war demonstrations in Russia yesterday. Um, the, you know, there's a possibility for this to go really bad, but what is our line in the sand? You know, if it's, if we get to a point where it's too late, then it's too late. Um, if we don't stand for, you know, a basic idea of, I mean, this is, this is a simple thing too, right? Russia isn't just waging war, a physical war. They're also waging this enormous war of disinformation, okay? And that's the other thing about it is that if you let them get away with any bit of that, you change the narrative entirely about how things are going to happen at first. We have to know what the truth is. And to allow them to wage this war on the truth is just, it's not as bad as the war they're waging in Ukraine, but it's an important part of it because then they are allowed to justify everything else that they want to do in the future. And so we have to also stand up for the true narrative, which is there was no reason for Russia to invade the Ukraine. No reason at all. Okay, the idea that it had something to do with, oh, maybe they were going to join a military alliance. You know what? That might make you unhappy, but it doesn't give you permission to invade somebody else's country. It just doesn't. And so you say, oh, it doesn't. There's no rationale for it. I mean, I, I, there's not much that I disagree with there. I don't, I don't disagree that to, to like the entirety of a degree that there, there's really not a fundamental basis for what they did. But I do come back to if, if Russia and Mexico were in a transatlantic alliance, you don't think that we would go send our troops into Mexico to say, you're not putting Russian, not putting Russian tanks on our border. Wait, we didn't invade Cuba. Oh fuck, we did. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like there there is I think there is like there is a degree to that. But I do I do buy that that this is a wholly unjust war, 100%. The I think the issue with China is an interesting one because I think I heard recently that Xi Jinping is getting ready to unveil his like his peace plan proposal, and I think something about that that struck me is just that you know, over the last 20 years, if if anybody was going to be like dealing with global conflict, not with within its own borders, it, it's going to be the United States. Right. Like China 10 years ago is never really inserting itself between Russia and Ukraine. Right. Any of these other countries that are are there now are not. But now we're in a slightly different dynamic where. Clearly, Russia feels itself strong enough that they can invade, you know, a, a country that is very friendly, that was, you know, pre-invasion and obviously during invasion, very friendly with the United States. That probably wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, China is obviously doing what it's doing with Taiwan and like circling it with their ships and doing other crazy stuff, right? That also wouldn't happen 10 years ago. I think there is something about this conflict that is unveiling that some of these powers that have been growing and maybe laying in in wait are now feeling a little bit more confident. And I, 
yeah, I guess I wonder what it says about the U.S. role in that we're not sort of the first we may not be the first country to unveil a like, you know, what is the path forward? Because right now, to me, there really isn't one definitely not coming from our side. I'm curious. I mean, like, the, I'm sure this Chinese proposal is not going to go anywhere. But I think it is interesting that that all of a sudden they feel like this, you know, this strongly on the global stage should do something like that. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there actually is a tremendous opportunity there for us to promote the Chinese and say really nice things about them if they bring about the peace that we want. Uh, and I think that China would welcome that, sort of a, you know an official acknowledgement of their position on the world stage, saying, look, the Chinese are the ones who brought about this amazing peace agreement. And there's, uh, you know, I, Tom Clancy wrote a book, I can't remember exactly which one it was, but his solution to the Middle East uh, to the problem of Jerusalem was to make Jerusalem part of Switzerland. We had talked about this earlier with the idea that, uh, you know, make Ukraine like Switzerland, but just make the Eastern pros- uh, provinces, uh, you know, UN have UN troops there to provide, protect the peace or Chinese troops, you know, whoever. I mean, I'm pretty sure that there are very few UN missions that China's really been a part of. Let them lead this one. Let them put the UN troops on the ground that, uh, you know, make sure that there's fair elections, such as they are, uh, in uh, not like Chinese elections, but um, wh- whatever it is, something that gets the Russians that, again, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep using it since I remember the phrase, right? Status quo uh, antebellum. Uh, get us back to that point, and then we can talk about all sorts of things. And if the Chinese can find a way to do that, man, let's raise them up. Let's acknowledge them. Let's honor them for bringing peace in a terrible situation. Because I think that it would be great to see the Chinese take that position on the world. Because, you know, the Chinese are are, are an incredibly uh, repressive regime. Um, My my ex-girlfriend many years ago uh, went and worked in China for a while. And she came back with some great uh, I don't want to call them Chinese jokes. They're Chinese government jokes. Um, but there's a, an Englishman, a uh, an American, and a citizen of China talking uh, about what is the best feeling in the world. Uh, and the Englishman says, the best feeling in the world is when I'm in my garden, tea time, and it's just the right temperature. <laughs> and uh, the birds are whistling is wonderful. The American says, for me, the best feeling in the world is I get home and there's a juicy steak and I bite the shit out of it. That's the best feeling in the world. And the, and the Chinese citizen says, for me, the best feeling in the world is when I'm at sleep in my bed at night and the police kick the door down and they grab me and they say, Mr. Wong, you're under arrest. And they're like, how is that the best feeling in the world? He's like, Mr. Wong is my neighbor. <laughs> so, you know, let, let, let's not have any illusions that the Chinese are, you know, great citizens. But the one thing that we know that really is the great equalizer is wealth. And when people become wealth wealthy, they want to be free. And the Chinese are getting there, right? I mean, they're not, they're not 
individually wealthy yet, but they're getting to the point that they're going to start to have issues with the people being wealthy. And let's face it, we're really helping them out a lot by buying a lot of their stuff. Uh, it still is true that the two greatest trading partners in the world, the two countries that have the most trade in between them, the United States and Canada. But China is coming up fast now. And that's impressive because China's a long way away. It's hard to trade stuff with them. So for us to have that volume of trade is pretty extraordinary. If we can promote the Chinese to the system of, you know, you guys are becoming remarkably wealthy uh, and make sure that that wealth is spread about in a more egalitarian way or help them to get to that point, we've made another ally. Uh, and hopefully that's that could be the best thing that comes out of this conflict is China steps up on the world stage as, let's not say capitalists, but as mercantilists, right? They want to be the greatest merchants in the world. Here's how it works, right? And, and you can't be, I mean, this is, right, right? The English did everything wrong with their empire. Let's just admit that 90% of the world's problems have to do with the British just really fucking things up for like 500 years. But the one thing that they understood was that there is no East India Tea Company. There is no wealthy uh, merchant nation without people around the world being wealthy enough to buy your goods. So you got to do what you can to promote them to be wealthy. And that's where the Chinese are right now. Well, that's the most optimistic take on China and U.S.-Chinese relationship that, I, that I've heard really anywhere. <laughs> so I, I appreciate that. We'll end on a nice positive note. And why don't you, you, you briefly mention what you're up to these days. So as I gave your bio at the beginning, um, former director, executive director of People for Liberty, former executive director of the Libertarian Party, you said a couple of times throughout this that you are a, now a small L libertarian. And can you just tell people kind of like, what, what, what are you up to these days? Uh, yeah. So the for people who aren't aware, you know, directly to this, the Libertarian Party has, I'll say it, has gone off its rails, unfortunately. Uh, we were always susceptible to take over uh, because we're not, there's not a lot of us. Uh, and as a result of that fact, and, uh, you know, Donald Trump and his ilk, uh, blaming, uh, aside from the stolen election, but also Joe Jorgensen for carrying six states, or having to spend six states, a lot of money was spent on undermining the uh, Libertarian Party. And recently, a lot of that money comes pretty directly from Russia. People will say, well, it's not coming directly from Russia because you can't, uh, Russia can't give money to a political party. But Russian TV is putting prominent people in the Libertarian Party on the air and paying them. Uh, and Russia TV gets all its money from Russia. So, you know, that, that, that's not a big stretch for me. Um, so, uh, I, I've stepped away from the Libertarian Party, uh, and I moved on from People for Liberty too. We had some, uh, different ideas about what we should do. And I felt that the Libertarian brand is tainted at this point in time, because unfortunately, if you say, oh, I'm here to talk about Liberty, people think, well, you're just a Georgia gun nut, uh, and that's where you are. But what I really want to talk about, uh, is this idea that really all we want to do is live and let live. That's all I want to do. And so I started a, a new uh, 501c3 called Let.Live. And we're only focused on three things. Number one, consent culture. Number two, tolerance. Number three, accepting that the world is changing and that somebody else wanting to change their life isn't a threat to yours. 
or it shouldn't be. And that's it. I just want to focus on those three things. I don't want to talk about anything that anybody could say is overly political. Um, and like I mean, the article that we talked that I we wrote today uh, talks specifically about the Ukraine and consent culture and how important self-defense is to the idea of consent culture. Uh, you know, there's this I'm trying to remember exactly what the case was, but, uh, you know, it, it was a woman being assaulted and Stanford at Stanford university and two bicyclists came by and essentially restrained the, her attacker. You guys remember the story. It should be beholden on all of us to understand that our security is not just in our own hands because at any point in time, a group of people can decide to violate your rights, your security. They can take your life if you're only by yourself. And so part of consent culture has to be a commitment among ourselves to defend consent culture equally. And that's why, to me, what's happening in Ukraine ties into that at a fundamental level. I could no more walk away from a person screaming for help, even though, look, if I hear something, so I'm old, right? Look at my gray hair, all this shit. I'm 55 years old. Um, but if I hear somebody screaming for help in the city, I'm going to respond. Fat as I am, incapable of delivery, of doing anything, I'm going to get there and do what I can. Because I'm attached to all, we're all attached. Our, the com, One commonality that we have is our human experience, right? Uh, I'm not a religious person, but... Uh, you know, there's this great, one of the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism, life is suffering. Okay, that's what we all know. It's the experience we all have. We have suffering and pain in our lives, and it's the human experience. And the best thing that we can do is to be with each other and prevent as much of that as we can. And so that means when somebody violates your right to, cons you're, you're consenting to things, stand up for them. Give them as much freedom as you can in their lives. So that's it. That's what Let That Live is. People can check us out. It doesn't sound like a website, but it is let.live. Put it into your browser and got about 50 articles up right now and uh, pretty good content. And we're going to be doing good things throughout the year. Well, yeah, we will definitely check that out and we hope other people do as well. And again, thank you so much for your time tonight and for coming back with us. And hopefully we can we can do it again, make it three times. I, I want to be the first three, Pete. All right. We'll, <laughs> we'll come back to you before we come back to anybody else. Yeah. All right. That's good. That's what I like to hear. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate you. All right. So I actually just want to pick up where Dan left off with his rosy take on China, which was, it was, it was like a little bit of a pleasant surprise because the way I posed the question of like, well, there's this kind of like looming threat out here that could make things a whole lot worse. And he acknowledged that like, that could happen. And maybe that's even more likely than not to happen. But what he was saying at the end there reminded me so much of the things that you have said about why it's important to invest in our relationship with China. And it, it made me think of one last two episodes ago now when we talked about the Chinese spy balloon and how much the consensus in the United States government right now and United States politics right now is very much we should be detangling ourselves from China and that we should be moving away from them economically and weakening our economic ties and strengthen, strengthening our own ability to produce products and technology here in our country, as opposed to China. We want to extrapolate ourselves from that relationship. And 
what Dan was saying, I think, goes so well with what you've said for a long time to your credit of like, well, it, on the other hand, we should actually be investing more in that relationship because that relationship is so crucial to keeping peace, not only between ourselves, but really globally. Yeah, uh, it, it was also something that I haven't I hadn't really considered. I was more sort of viewing this of like, you know, how could how could the U.S. sort of let this happen in terms of allowing China to get into some kind of a prominent position here? But as Dan was saying, the more I was thinking like that, this actually may be the only way that it happens, because at this point, anything that the U.S. does will be viewed with some real suspicion from Moscow. China is kind of our actually like the only intermediary that we have in that obviously still Xi Jinping is still very friendly with Putin. He they haven't to date provided lethal military support which i think for us would you know effectively cross a, a major red line so they are in maybe the only one of that stature that's kind of like in the position to do something like this and yeah i i guess i'm i'm curious to see i i think the the cynic in me as as that person tends to come out is that like we will not from our side, be interested in supporting any proposal that China puts forward for the simple fact that it's China. No, and that's pretty much what happened is that this came out that China had this potential peace plan and President Biden was like, well, this is not whatever they come out is not going to be acceptable because they haven't engaged in actual diplomacy like Xi Jinping and um, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, Zelensky uh, haven't haven't talked at all. Like that was his big criticism of it is that like these two parties haven't talked and I've I agree with that. But at the same time, it's not like Biden has been talking to Putin. You know, what I mean, it's the same type of thing. If the United States had this peace, like if the United States put out a peace plan being as, as Dan kept recording like status quo antebellum, people in, in China would probably be like, well, how do you have a peace plan when the United States has never like talked with Russia about this? So, I mean, I think those are like valid criticisms on both sides, but whatever. I just thought that was a, a really interesting point where that, the United, the United States Chinese relationship in general is so much about competition. That's not going to change. And that's not a bad thing to, to be competitive, but also that it doesn't necessarily need to be like at the expense. We can use competition for good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, so that, that was one point that I thought was interesting. Another point I thought, and this is where I was really excited and curious to hear what Dan was going to have to say about this, because like that small libertarianism is very much like, tends toward being isolationist. So I wondered how, because obviously an incredibly intelligent guy and a very thoughtful guy too, not only just book smart, but someone that like really thinks about like his beliefs and his, his ideas. So how he was going to kind of justify like the things of we should kind of not be getting involved in uh, foreign conflicts with the enormous, uh, relatively, um, relatively large investment that we have made in, in Ukraine, whether it's monetarily or militarily or just the the, strand, the ties that we've we've forged with them. I'm curious as like how what you how you think he did with that. Because I think it, in some ways what he said at the end there of like consent culture and standing up for people that can't defend themselves makes a lot of ideological sense. Like there's a lot of consistency in that reasoning. And Morally, I, I agree with it. Like if, if we're going to get involved 
in foreign conflicts, we should be getting involved on behalf of people who are having their rights violated, who are having their freedoms threatened and taken away. Like I, that's, I believe, I agree with that. And that's why I've been in favor of what the United States has done so far. I do think it's, it's a little bit tricky. Like even like the, the weapons thing he was saying, was like, well, if we're going to take taxes, we already have the weapons. Like, why not give them here? Like, well, doesn't that, couldn't we argue that anytime? And I think like his point about Vietnam was really good that we were the bad guys there, but did we know at the time we were the bad guys? And even if we think we're the good guys here and I do, Russia doesn't think that people all over the world. I don't know that they agree with that. So I, I, I was curious, like what you thought about all of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, well, it, it, it's clear that he's interested in moral consistency, which I think is so often difficult to achieve in these kinds of situations. And I, and I think from like an argument standpoint, I think he does a pretty good job. But my problem is exactly what you alluded to at the end, which is, yes, in the very black and white rudimentary world of good guys and bad guys, I think you'd be hard pressed to not have Putin be the bad guy in this situation. But I don't I, I mean, I hesitate to even say but, but there is. I think there's just so much more at play here. And I thought it was interesting that he brought in sort of the the comparison to like Neville Chamberlain's piece in our time and obviously, you know, re- referencing the situation with Hitler before 1939. In um, that I don't, I don't really think that that is applicable. I don't think that long-term territorial ambitions, even though, Putin has alluded to that. And maybe maybe I'm the Neville, Neville, Neville Chamberlain in this situation, which I certainly could be, right? Like, it's very yeah. difficult yeah. To, to say that. But I I think he's right. Like, I think it, in, in, in some ways, the disbelief that Putin would ever take it this far is still fundamentally true because, like, a... Uh, you know, a a prolonged occupation of Ukraine, even if we weren't giving these weapons, right? Like we know what they were able to do to us in Afghanistan. We know what they were able, you know, to to do to us in Vietnam, despite us, you know, bombing the country back to the stone age three times over, right? Like the, the modern weapons of war, unless you're basically willing to like, you know, wipe out an entire country are not necessarily effective in terms of long term. And, you know, he brought up sort of Georgia and Chechnya as well. I mean, massive thorns in the side of Russia for a long time because they operate this kind of guerrilla network. You don't really know where it's coming from, but people have to live in fear. And like, that's the number one role of a government is to provide that level of security for its people. And so these long term occupations you can never have that. I mean, a similar situation you can argue between Israel and Palestine right now, right? Like, despite all of the overwhelming military might, if people do not feel safe going to the cafe, going to the grocery store, whatever, it doesn't really matter because, yeah, you're. I mean, you're living in in a, like a perpetual state of fear. So, I, I mean, I would see the exact same thing happening between Russia and Ukraine, and so it's it's very difficult to me, like the old school uh, 
territorial grabs of like the, you know, Prussia's and the Austro-Hungary empires of old basically were like going from one horrible government to another. Like it didn't really matter who was my king because I was not getting shit from the government anyways. Right now it's a very different type of thing where people in, in Ukraine, certainly there's a good majority or maybe not even a good majority, but at least probably 50% of the people are very much invested in the Western style of democracy. And so that would just make any prolonged intervent or prolonged sort of land grab by Russia very, very difficult and very costly. And we've seen how that kind of plays out. So there is, I, I kind of lost track of where I was, <laughs> where I was going as I frequently do, but, but I, I mean, I, th- I think that that is, that's kind of like at play here as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear what you're saying there. Um, I, I will think one thing that we didn't get into too deeply and that's fine. Like the conversation was certainly wide ranging enough as it was, but that I, I do think it is going to be really interesting to keep an eye on, which is why I keep kind of kept coming back to that. And the conversation was uh, just like the, the political dynamics here in the United States, uh, obviously, as we start to ramp up into the 2024 elections, like now you start to have the G- like the the Republican candidates come out. And just in the last week, you have DeSantis, who is not declared yet, but is running in all but name, come out and pretty much criticize Biden for everything that he's been doing and, and saying that, like, we shouldn't be involved here. And then you have Nikki Haley, who are it was already uh, already announced that her candidacy and she's very much like in the. George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, like the the kind of more, more traditional pre-Trump conservative of like, we need to be doing more here to to stand up for freedom and stand against authoritarianism. And I just think that's going to be, and how long do like the Democrats hold on? Like Biden's done a pretty good job of like corralling Democrats to like support him, which is great. But there's got to be the more progressive Democrats that are looking around and being like, I'm not sure how long I want this to go on for. And so I do think like the political dimensions of this, and again, I do think Biden's going to run as far as I know, but if he doesn't, like, we're going to hear this, there's going to be real contrast on the, the Republican debate stage about what we should do in Ukraine. And if for whatever reason, Biden didn't run, there's going to be real contrast on the Democratic debate stage too. And I think that's real. I think that's going to be fascinating because as I said, with Dan here, like, depending on who we elect in 20 months, that's going to fundamentally change the United States role in this, I think, which is uh, in Whatever. Well, I'm sure we'll talk much more about this, but it's just something I'll definitely be keeping an eye on, even just like rhetorically over the next few months. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it is going to be fascinating to keep an eye on. I think his point of the, you know, the Joe Jorgensen getting a big chunk of the vote, not a big chunk, but a, a substantial chunk when like the margins were a percent here or there. Right. Um, and now how having sort of the Libertarian Party kind of coalesce around a lot of kind of far right. Republican views. I think that's very interesting. I I actually don't disagree that it is in Russia's interest to have a a singular Republican party that is running a far right type of ticket um, just, you know, based on, based on sort of Trump's rhetoric in the past. Um, I, yeah. And, and I, (laughs) I think it is going to be very fascinating to, to see how it unfolds. Although I do, I guess, to your point, I do hope that even on the democratic side, there is a little bit more thought into how, or, you know, not just like if we support them, but how we support Ukraine moving forward, which I really don't feel like there has been because it's all been 
yeah, the traditional Democratic war hawks and, you know, middle of the road Republicans and Democrats coming up with the only solution, which is just pour in the arms. Yeah, well, I am sure that we will talk about these issues again in the coming weeks and months. But with the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we felt like it was right to talk about it. Uh, this week and this episode and again as always we appreciate people listened huge thanks to dan fishman again for joining us you can as he mentioned go check him out his work and uh on let.live and if you like this we hope you follow us on spotify on apple wherever you get your podcasts on instagram at a underscore gentleman's underscore disagreement and yeah thanks to everyone that listens as always yeah until next time see ya We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's hands folks of different minds because even though we did not share opinions we share all that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz meet an early morning buzz learn the hallway but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes Being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions we share loud American ideals friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz there's hope behind the bluster cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and change the lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz What I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share That American ideal 
Friends made over hoggy mats and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.